Hello, everybody. This is uh, Designing Enterprise Platforms, a podcast from Early Adopter Research. My name is Dan Woods. Uh, I am the principal analyst and founder of Early Adopter Research, and we have been doing a podcast series for about a year and a half or so. Um, Tara Spaulding today is our guest, and we're going to be talking about startup growth lessons uh, and you know the perspective that she has as an incubator uh, uh, executive in a different environment than we hear about incubators. Tara is lo- based in Utah and has a lot of experience in uh, enterprise software of, of, of varying kinds. She was the VP of marketing at Sugar CRM, and you're now managing director of Boom Startup Accelerator. So yes. uh, would you like to tell us a little bit about Boom Startup Accelerator, and then we can go through the topics we've got arranged. Yeah, absolutely. Uh Boom Startup is an online accelerator. It was founded in 2010, actually here in Utah, as you mentioned. Uh, However, about five years ago, it made the transformation to go all online, which expanded our reach to include companies and startups across, in fact, the entire globe. Our focus as an accelerator is to really rise the actual business model behind the innovations so that it creates formidable businesses and then basically to amplify those businesses by either investing them in our by ourselves or as well as get investors on board as well and dan thank you so much for inviting me today to be your guest this is a really exciting moment and i'm so happy to be here with you and to share my perspectives from enterprise software, and now it's incubation and acceleration of companies. Well, in the preparation for this, uh, it was really mm-hmm. interesting to talk to you because Designing Enterprise Platforms is a podcast that's about the idea of how do you consolidate and assemble in a company a platform to solve your problems? And that's usually uh, assembled through one or more products and then perhaps with some integration or some other development. And yeah. so you're, you're really focused on uh, uh, understanding the problem and understanding how to solve it. Both the, the internal executives have to assemble the platform, but then the vendors, of course, have to participate in that. And when I talked to you about this, it was so interesting because you really were focused not so much on the tech, not so much on the financing events, but really on the customer and yes. also on the business model on how to capture value. And, and that was a real difference from a lot of the conversations you get uh, about startups, which focus on A round, B round, C round, and then they focus on just growth for its own sake without really understanding how that fits into a value creation model. So let's get started. Uh, one yeah. of the things that you said that uh, was really interesting to me was you felt that there was a pretty substantially different mindset in Utah in terms of startup culture as opposed to the Silicon Valley mindset. What do you think? What is what are would you describe both mindsets and tell me what do you think the differences are? Yes, absolutely. And Dan, I think this is actually going to be the culminus as to why I have this approach. Now, just to give the listeners uh, some background, I started my career in the enterprise software space within Silicon Valley, and it was at the turn of the century all that long time ago, but just right when, in fact, we were moving to a SaaS platform, as well as different sort of revenue streams versus like the typical client licensing. It was um, a bloom of creativity when it came to packaging and delivering of software. And of course, enterprise market was just so incredibly 
important for this sort of creation. I started my career actually as a coder and worked my way up through marketing and eventually became a marketing executive. Uh, I also was a co-founder of a couple of startups as well. And, you know, the thing is, is that uh, in Silicon Valley, we created what we call rocket companies. And the inverse of a rocket is, in fact, an airplane. Both of them take flight, but they're using fuel in totally different approaches. And so I would say Silicon Valley is more like building rockets as companies. And the fuel is capital to, in fact, get that uh, entity off the ground and taking flight. Whereas in Utah or Silicon Slopes, uh, we built airplanes out here, which has a lot of more efficient way of using capital or the fuel to get that growth and that flight. I see. So, yeah, one of the kind of uh, properties of the kind of Silicon Valley model that I've always found kind of disturbing is the fact that, you know, you get your A round and then you, your burn rate gets high and then yes. you get your B round and you're, they, 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 everybody's encouraging you to focus on growth. Your burn rate stays high. You get yes. your C round. And by the time you've done that, you as the founder have as much equity as the, 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 <laughs> the, the, the I, I guess I, I don't want to say a nasty word, but the jerk that they bring in to be the CEO to replace you. And, 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 and you don't really spend any time protecting your equity at all. And I think that's one of the properties because the investors don't care because they're constantly re-upping as long as they believe and protecting their equity that way. And unless you have more money, you only have time to put in. And it's, it really works against the, the entrepreneur if the entrepreneur is not able to participate in the investing rounds as well. Yeah, and you're bringing up a really good point. So let's look at Silicon Valley and drive into the, the rocket businesses that it creates. And it's been, in fact, very successful for decades on doing so. So I was a head of marketing at these Silicon Valley companies. I was consistently tracking important data points that was basically proving out that top line growth. These data points were like, how many visits, how many engagements, how many leads did you get? What are the conversion rates of your leads? Um, how many downloads, how many deployments, how many trials? All of those are indicators for rapid, rapid growth that in fact, going back to my analogy of building a rocket says, indeed, we're a rocket and we are taking flight. When I was the very first employee, in fact, at these software companies, it was easy to prove these rapid top line growths that was just very expected in the Valley because it's easy to, to double and triple digits that are in like the four and five bracket numbers or digits numbers. But when you get into like the thousands of visits and you're trying to move it to the hundreds of thousands of visits in the same amount of time, well, that's when it gets expensive. And so to your point, about fueling that sort of rapid, consistent, high growth number, that's where the cash infusion comes in. And we see the transformation of what is like the quick early adopter growth to now the fueled or artificial growth rate that the top line um, can be supported by the venture capital community. And for another perspective to add to this, Dan, is that Silicon Valley 
is a brilliant ecosystem. Not only do you have these amazing innovators and people like me that are looking at different business models and packaging and deployment strategies, but you're also completely supported by a, a very deep cadre of capital investments that's, that's only like 25 miles away from your office, right? And so because there's heavy and densely populated venture capital that's looking for the next big things, their only moniker of success is that initial traction and that initial you know, insane growth rate. And they're gonna fuel that because they know that in fact, that's the catalyst for those sorts of exits, which you were referring to. But, but also I think that there's a, a difference between the mindset that you need for a B2B company and a B2C company. Because a, a, a lot of the VCs that we have here in New York, like Fred Wilson at Union Square Ventures, he wrote blogs where he was always very skeptical of spending on marketing because he felt that the product itself should be the way that the, the marketing happens. The product should be engaging people and growing virally. And that's when you know you have a big winner. Well, that really works well and can work brilliantly well in a consumer space. But when you're talking about a, a complex enterprise software that solves a high value problem that involves you know, incorporation of lots of different departments and takes mm -hmm. a while for everybody to get it, it's never viral in, in the same way. It's, it, it, it can get viral, but much later on, you know, when, when it becomes the kind of like, no one ever got fired for buying Salesforce sort of choice. <laughs> it's, you know, that virality, and also even that virality is much slower. Uh, and that yeah. happens years after the, the, the startup has, has uh, gotten going and, and has a whole ecosystem that can support it. So could you talk a little bit about what the difference between sort of like the Silicon Slopes mindset and the Silicon Valley mindset is when you're trying to build an enterprise software company? Yes, I think I've done a good job illuminating the Silicon Valley rocket. Let me revisit on Silicon Slopes and the, the concept of building an airplane and why in fact, going back to that ecosystem and how the Utah ecosystem is much different than the Silicon Valley ecosystem. And that's how we created this sort of approach. Clayton Christensen is the author of The Innovator's Dilemma. And he is in fact, uh, one of the leading American economists and is from uh, Utah. He went to high school here in Salt Lake City and then went to BYU, then went to Harvard, et cetera, et cetera, and just became a really well-known author because he had this disruptive model that is about a process and an approach versus just focused on that innovation. And Clayton Christensen's thesis, if you don't know this, is that the incumbents, the behemoth companies out there can in fact be upset because all they're doing is trying to profit and maximize the experience on the customers that, make, that they make happy. But that leaves so much open space for basically applying satisfaction. And going back to your point earlier, it's all about keeping an eye on who is your customer first and foremost. And so smaller companies 
the more that are more agile and are actually paying attention to the blind spots or the negative spaces within industries, the dissatisfied users, et cetera. This is where that disruption play in the innovator's dilemma comes in. You have to kind of unlearn what works and then go forward by getting to know this dissatisfied community and figuring out exactly how to create a sort of solution, be it experiential or process or value-oriented that now better fits their needs and then you acquire that customer. It well, results yeah. in, okay. No, that's really interesting because it, it kind of plays into the next thing that um, I wanted to talk about, which you brought up uh, in our preparation. And that is the idea that there's a scorecard that if you're a kind of a Silicon Valley mindset, that company that you are trying to maximize and optimize for. And so that mm -hmm. scorecard, you know, involves number of users, growth, uh, 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 you know, the a variety of different uh, uh, metrics that are focused on acceleration and, 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 and showing that you have a really rapid pace of growth. While in the Silicon Slopes mindset, you focus much more on business creation mechanics is the way that you said it. And your yes. scorecard is much different. And so you're, you're, you're not focused as much on growth, but what are you focused on? What, what is the scorecard like? And what is the business creation mechanics you know, story that you are telling yourself and your investors? Yeah, absolutely. And it starts with the ecosystem because it builds and creates a different DNA. It builds a different animal. It builds an airplane. Utah does not have the sort of capital resources that either coasts have. And just now, in fact, it's starting to accelerate and it's 2021, right? Uh, one of our, um, uh, in fact, iconic investor here in Utah, his name is Paul Alstrom. He's the one that in fact authored the book, Nail It and Scale It, because it has the sort of mindset that you're going to build a company that is 100% focused on your customer and you're going to immediately start selling because if they don't buy it, you don't have a business. You may have an innovation, but you don't have a business. And if they're the wrong customer, then adjust. And you're going to adjust either one by looking at a new set of customers or two in reshaping your innovation, your packaging, your delivery, like your sales channel, or in fact, the innovation itself, because it's just not enough to provide that given value. And then ironically, Paul Alstrom here in Utah, back in, I believe, 2000, started vSpring Capital, which is one of our like earlier uh, VC firms here. Before vSpring, I think we only had 10 total for the entire state. <laughs> I mean, it's almost unfathomable. And then after that, he creates Alta Growth Capital. And if you heard of Alta, it's a very famous Utah ski resort. So we know what Paul likes. And right. then in 2008, he co-founded Kickstart Seed Fund. And so Paul was smart that we needed early stage of pre-seed and seed investment, as well as that early stage Series A and now late stage capital. But we need like 
we needed so many more Pauls, you right. know, but to, what, to but, get that ecosystem. That, but what I'd like to talk about yeah. is, and one thing that you mentioned that I thought was really important is that is the fact that successful enterprise um, uh, uh, software uh, exec or, or entrepreneurs are super uh, intimate with their customers. They really, yes. really know what's going on. But yes. then and you mentioned that, you know, the, one of the most important metrics is able to use sales, you know, so that you're you're not selling the, the product at a, uh, a, a price that is basically uh, funding the, um, uh, the sale by having the VC money subsidize it. You're, you're, you're actually selling it at a profitable price. But then the, the other thing is that you have to have a whole, the, you're looking at metrics that describe the whole business, not just yes. the growth. So would you just talk about you know, what you described about the, you know, those, you, you call them business creation mechanics, but it's paying attention to not just one kind of metric, but many other metrics that, that represent building other parts of the business. Well, how does that work? What does that look like? Yeah. And if I can also fill in the gaps a little bit. So when I came to Utah in 2014, I came as an incubator itself. And so what I did as an incubator was quickly get my fingers on, you know, 20, 30 local companies and figure out how did they get from idea to revenue, right? And all of them were using very important phraseology. First off, the financial education, especially around cash flow management, like balance sheets, so superbly higher here in Utah, because you know what, there isn't that sort of immediate infusion of capital just in case you know, the runway is down to the last three months. And so you're finding, you know, innovators and developers that have a sense of profit and loss. Secondly, there's also this unit cost economics that they do behind the sort of innovation. And so unit cost economics can actually be offset by the Utah uh, academic community. And I'll explain that as a, you know, another facet to why this is a different ecosystem. And then also there's things such as like the customer lifetime value, as well as the acquisition costs. So you look at a customer according to their profitability to your company. And it's these sorts of sound values that really just sort of increase or decrease like marketing and sales spends because it's survivability and it's self-reliance for that sort of expansion. Got it. So the, the kind of businesses that you're creating are ones that have much more focus on the accounting and cost structure. There was a great article in Medium recently yeah. about Ample Hills, a, a New York City ice cream store that got a lot of money, and but, but it, it kept always spending it really rapidly, making impulsive decisions, not shepherding the capital, because the, the idea was we can always get more. We can always get more. It was That's right. it, it was growth focused. It wasn't efficiency and, 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 and making the capital last focused. And as a result, the founders were eventually, they weren't able to get more. And then uh, another entrepreneur was, was able to buy the business at a, at a steep discount, even though the, they had done a great job of building a really successful brand. And so um, now the just talk one more uh, uh uh, a little bit more about the difference between how early you build a sales function and a marketing function 
you know, in a silicon uh, slopes sort of company. Because yeah. I assume that that like the the kind of marketing function happens earlier and is more important because you're not focused on kind of sort of, um, well, I guess maybe it's a different kind of marketing function. Would you, would you talk a little bit about that? I would love to. And in fact, I'm going to take a quick step back and explain the difference in the ecosystems, which are the drivers behind these sort of marketing and sales functions. Just like you said in your example, Dan, this is perfect. When you have, in fact, too easy of an access to capital and there isn't that sort of starvation stranglehold, it creates this false sense of security behind the business. And that's just because the ecosystem is overweighted with um, access to capital um, to balance off the innovation. And on the West Coast, in Silicon Valley, for example, we also had an imbalance because we had like a really huge, significant um, user base of like radically early adopters. And so even like when I was mentioning those false metrics of, you know, acquisition and leads and trials, et cetera, that's just because everybody wanted to be on the cool new next thing, right? But that's not how, you know, the everyday America works, even when it comes to enterprise software. And so out in uh, Silicon Slopes here in Utah, we have an ancillary level um, that's helping us with really advanced technology. And I mentioned it earlier, which is the academics. And we have um, like a dozen phenomenal schools with undergraduate as well as graduate programs. And we're focusing on like so many different aspects of technology, not only enterprise technology, of course, but also things like biotech, clean tech, et cetera. It's just, it's just amazing out here. These sort of um, academic sort of support allows the idea to basically permeate and uh, mature to see if in fact, all of those trials and tests can uh, in fact be passed. And then the other aspect that's really interesting is that all of these academic communities permit what we call a tech transfer through licensing, et cetera, where all of a sudden the IP that's just been tested and rooted and cleaned and validated can then become a company. And then that basically fast tracks with protected IP and proven IP, those sort of companies that are spurring out. Now, to your point about the marketing, when does this start? The answer is immediate. And if you're starting with a tech transfer or if you're starting with your own code that you wrote in, in you know, the, the garage, great, that's awesome. But to your point, if you don't start with understanding and addressing the market and listening to their sorts of response and watching their sort of behavior with your sort of innovation or product, uh, then you're not going to get that reciprocated insight, which you need to figure out how big is this market? Who else can I apply uh, this technology to that has similar sort of pain points? And that's when we need to take a backseat as executives and thought leaders and just pay attention. And there's certainly low-hanging fruit, especially when it comes to uh, identifying those early adopters, like I said, that are on the coasts and, you know, in, in tech areas, because they are intellects and they are willing 
to try new stuff, but those aren't the people that you're going to mirror in profiles. It's the everyday users that are having those sorts of problems and pains that you need to get intimately aware and know, and then identify what other groups are out there that match those needs accordingly. Well, and then the 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 thing that it's it's sometimes easy to to to, to get lost here is that the Silicon Slopes mindset is also about building huge, successful, massive businesses. Indeed. It's just that it's a different sort of uh, mindset. And the the I think the easiest way to, to discuss the difference is it's not necessarily about a brand creation as as much as it's about like a category creation. And you know the book Play Bigger you know, has a lot of interesting insights in about category strategy. But I mean, when we talked in our prep material, it was really interesting because, you know, you start off and you have something that's really interesting. Maybe you could think of it as a kitchen gadget, you know, that that that, that helps people do some business process. But then as time goes on, that kitchen gadget then becomes, you know, part of a bigger, bigger claim of it's not just helping you chop the onions. It's also helping you make a better meal. You know, mm-hmm, and then, you know, so you, 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 you get more of the kind of kitchen real estate. And then eventually it, it, you, you realize that, no, wait, this category is bigger. It's, it's actually about building a different kind of kitchen or a different room in your house. And that's when you have created a category when the idea is this problem is so big that everybody has to have one. And we happen yeah. to have defined that. And we are now the leader because you need now need a new room in your house. It's obvious everybody who's getting a new room is getting a lot of benefit, and we're the ones who who thought that up. So obviously we know most about it. That's a yeah. lot different than a viral story. And so, how do you support that as a you know is an how do you go and support that as an incubator you know kind of encourager of of these business models? And what is the journey like? Yeah, no, it's it's a great question. Um, back in 2016, 2017. I had the honor of working with Matt DeBergalis. And if his name is not familiar, it should be because he's the founder and CTO of Apollo GraphQL. Uh, My background is actually in open source and commercializing open source. And I got to work with him accordingly. A little bit about Apollo GraphQL. This is a company started by Matt, as well as Jeff Schmidt, Um, back in, um, I believe, 2016, uh, based upon an open source solution that was written in 2012 and released under like the Creative Commons license by Facebook. And what GraphQL does as an open source project, I like to compare it to um, basically super glue for data. But the cool thing about this sort of super glue is that it's like insanely flexible and it is also dynamic. And most importantly, it's lightweight. But the problem is, is when it was released as an open source project, it had all of this elasticity and capacity and capability, but it just wasn't productized to help enterprises with really big problems to actually apply it. And so Matt and Jeff got together in 2016 and said, forget it, let's start our own company. And the way they did this, Dan, was brilliant. They went and talked to massive enterprise companies and said, hey, how how do we get our our, uh, software to not be skunk works? And, And let me just rephrase that. 
the developers at these massive companies were using the open source product without any sort of support. And so that's why it's called Skunk Works. And so Matt and Jeff interviewed them, figured out exactly what they need, figure out how to make it not just an open source project that's relevant for, in fact, like a social media platform, uh, but also to help out empower companies like BMW, Airbnb, SurveyMonkey. And, you know, I was there as a part of their team to do and capture these customer stories. And it's just absolutely fantastic, but it shows the DNA as to who they were as a founder. And let me tell you, Apollo GraphQL has grown significantly. When I was there in 2016, 2017, uh, they were just basically deploying sort of implementation instruments that they would support for any sort of device and consumption, both front end as well as back end. And they also had a, a library, a CDN library. And it was like super cool, really huge announcement. And these massive companies that were stumped were just fully embracing. And I knew they were going to be huge. Now, in 2019, absolutely. They are now the industry leader to go to your point as to like, what does it take, right? Well, it takes a whole line of those kitchen utensils, which you referred to, but they started off with a really sharp knife, right? And as they continue to pay attention, back to my point, listen to your audience always at the beginning and always thereafter, because those are the clients that are going to tell you exactly where you need to get next. Right. And in and 2019, they closed $22 million in funding by Andreessen Horowitz. And they certainly are the market leader for GraphQL. Got it. And so the idea is that, you know, just what we talked about starting about how solutions to enterprise, you know, problems are really constructed as platforms, you know, internally. Yes. The, the, the executives inside a company, the, the technologists inside a company assemble a platform and, and out of a variety of different products and integrations. And, and I think that the what you can say the same thing is as you become closer to becoming a category, your product itself becomes a platform. It's no longer yes. that one you know, innovation, that one kitchen gadget. It's now a whole complex of them that then define and are integrated and also uh, describe a process for solving a problem and creating a value in, in there. Um, uh, this is great. Before we go to questions, is there anything you'd like to say to sum up about the difference between the, the, the Silicon Valley and the Silicon Slopes mindset? Well, I think the one thing that both areas have taken advantage of is market timing. And uh, by paying attention to those sorts of outside factors, I think those who are savvy enough to understand the new set of pressures and problems that are arising from either the current or prospective user bases is in fact, you know, how they're taking advantage for rapid uh, and, and stable, like sound business growth. I look at, in fact, GraphQL and what they did was just at the earmark as to 5G technology and how everything right now is on a mobile app. And and, you know, you look at how Airbnb and Lyft and Uber work, it's, they're all powered, you know, by this elastic data uh, management, you know, and sharing. And then, you know, I look at, you know, other companies 
and such as those that are now uh, helping remote workforce, for example, that were just immediately offset. In fact, a year ago today <laughs> with, with our COVID anniversary of being from home. And, you know, in fact, even this platform, Zoom, you know, it's just the right market timing and the right packaging, et cetera, to just, you know, figure out what's, what's needed and take advantage of that rapid market. Um, okay, well, I'm going to open up for questions. If anybody has some questions and would like to either uh, ask them um, uh, uh, directly or uh, uh, ask them, you know, through the chat, please do. Um, you know, uh, one question we have is about the changing role of the incubator. Um, you know, what is the difference between an incubator in the Silicon Valley model and an incubator in the Silicon Slopes model? Yeah, actually. It, the nomenclature is, is pretty interesting. And I think our business uh, growth category in general is in fact transforming, you know, due to not only the new technologies, but also what startup businesses actually need. Uh, uh, I am the founder of Hen House Ventures, which is in fact an incubator, and it's a service-based sort of industry that really specializes in go-to-market strategy, uh, validation, as well as helping companies figure out, um, you know, funding preparation and all that good stuff. It's a service sort of model um, that is not intended to have long relationships for just the drop-in experts, you know, to fill in the sort of blanks. Accelerators uh, uh, basically became extremely popular in, you know, the 2010s, 20-teens. And they were, in fact, focusing on helping and providing creative spaces uh, for the innovators to solve problems to either, you know, unaddressed communities or in new advanced ways. And, you know, you look at uh, Y Combinator, 500 startups, uh, we have tech stars, you know, they've done a fabulous job. You look at their portfolio and hats off to them. What I do with uh, Boom Startup is that we're going to be dropping in and helping with the acceleration of business growth in Utah style. So do you have the sound uh, financial economics? Do you have the sound product market fit and customer market, addressable market um, to attract the right sort of capital, either and first and foremost, uh, paid by from your customers, and then secondly, or secondarily from, you know, private equity spaces, such as venture capitalists, angel investors, etc. Got it. So uh, what do you think that uh, the difference is like from an entrepreneurial perspective, like at a my day and my interaction with the incubator in a Silicon Valley mindset is focused on X, Y and Z. And in a Silicon Slopes mindset is focused on you know, A, B and C. What, what are the difference? What are the different ways that you're you're, you're getting value from from the incubation process? Honestly, I think all programs now have transformed because of COVID. And you're now, like before, it was like, if you're going to join my accelerator, you need to move and actually house your startup founders at our office for the next three to six months and, you know, leave Maine and, and come to San Francisco, et cetera. 
Well, COVID just messed all of those components up and every single platform is transforming uh, so that we can provide those sorts of services and check-in points remotely. Um, you know, our, our new set of endeavors are to create those peer-to-peer -peer communities that were being held in a shared office space now online. And it's creating a new sort of structure uh, that's driving more poignant conversations uh, within the experts that are grooming these startups and within the startup peers themselves. Got it. And so we have one question from one of our attendees um, who said that he was originally denied funding because he was not able to work full time on his startup. Um, uh, he's asking, what does it take to kind of get traction uh, so that he would could get a little funding before he goes full time, uh, you know, so that he can you know reduce risk on the uh, to his himself personally, but also get some acceleration from an investor. Yeah, so those are give and take situations, and I don't know who he uh, this person. I don't know who this person is, and I don't know their situation nor who they pitched. Uh, but I can tell you that the appetite for investment changes person by person and entity by entity. So if you get feedback from one entity, perhaps misscreen them um, as an entrepreneur. Uh, there is an organization based in Silicon Valley, a venture capital group called uh, Precursor, and they are absolutely fine in investing into radically innovative and disruptive and new market creating opportunities and technology without a product even found, but they do require a really deep and intimate knowledge as to the potential market size and potential market need. But they too have a downward pressure onto the entrepreneur to make sure that there's a rapid innovation cycle and that all that they're putting in is into not only product creation, but product deployment to that initial identify a target market and make sure it fits. Because if not, then why continue, right? Got it. So, so the and, idea is the more you can show pain that's really a lot of people have, yes. the more you can show that you understand that pain and have an idea of how to address it, maybe not a crystallized solution, but an idea. And the more yes. you can show that you're actually iterating to kind of come up with the perfect solution, the easier it'll be on you. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. And the thing is, is like, it depends on the category that you're going after um, or the business model uh, that can be implemented. It really does change the drivers and, you know, the way you're measuring those sorts of growth movements. And there's absolutely the capability of going in and figuring out you know, you know, what are they existing or currently paying for or what would they be willing to pay for, et cetera, just by doing really good intimate interviews and shadowing. Excellent. Mm -hmm. Well, Tara, this has been a really interesting conversation. Um, if you have any concluding thoughts, now's the time to, to make them, but I'm really happy that we joined, you joined us today. Is there Thank you. Else? I really enjoyed having this conversation. Excellent. Well, thanks, everybody. This has uh, been another edition of Designing Enterprise Platforms, a podcast from Early Adopter Research. My name is Dan Woods. I'm the principal analyst and founder of Early Adopter Research. And we will be publishing this on uh, Early Adopter Research in the podcast area. And uh, can't wait to talk next time with you and other people who are interested in the, these topics about making 
enterprises more successful. Thank you so much, Tara. Thank you. Have a good one.